This is Audible. Isis Audiobooks presents an unabridged recording of Raising Steam, written by Terry Pratchett, read by Stephen Briggs. The moral right of the author has been asserted. Copyright Terry and Lynn Pratchett, 2013. First published by Random House Audiobooks, a division of the Random House Group, 2013. It is hard to understand nothing, but the multiverse is full of it. Nothing travels everywhere, always ahead of something, and in the great cloud of unknowing, nothing yearns to become something, to break out, to move, to feel, to change, to dance, and to experience. In short, to be something. And now it found its chance as it drifted in the ether. Nothing, of course, knew about something. But this something was different, oh yes. And so nothing slid silently into something and floated down with everything in mind and fortunately landed on the back of a turtle, a very large one, and hurried to become something even faster. It was elemental and nothing was better than that and suddenly the elemental was captured. The bait had worked. Anyone who has ever seen the river Ank sliding along its bed of miscellaneous nastiness would understand why so much of the piskeen food for the people of Ankh-Morpork has to be supplied by the fishing fleets of Quirm. In order to prevent terrible gastric trouble for the citizenry, Ankh-Morpork fishmongers have to ensure that their suppliers make their catches a long, long way from the city. For Bowden Jeffreys, purveyor of the very best in seafood, the two hundred miles or more which lay between the fish docks at Querm and the customers in Ankh-Morpork was a regrettably long distance throughout the winter, autumn and spring, and a sheer penance in the summertime, because the highway, such as it was, became a linear furnace all the way to the big city. Once you had to deal with a ton of overheated octopus, you never forgot it. The smell lasted for days and followed you around and almost into your bedroom. You could never get it out of your clothes. People were so demanding, but the elite of Ankh-Morpork, and indeed everyone else, wanted their fish even in the hottest part of the season. Even with an ice house built by his own two hands, and by arrangement a second ice house halfway along the journey, it made you want to cry. It really did. And he said as much to his cousin, Relief Jeffreys, a market gardener, who looked at his beer and said, It's always the same. Nobody wants to help the small entrepreneur. Can you imagine how quickly strawberries turn into little balls of mush in the heat? Well, I'll tell you, no time at all. Blink and you miss them, just when everybody wants their strawberries. And you ask the watercress people how difficult it is to get the damn stuff to the city before it's as limp as a second-day sermon. We should petition the government. No, said his cousin, I've had enough of this. Let's write to the newspapers. That's the way to get things done. Everyone's complaining about the fruit and vegetables and the seafood. That Inari should be made to understand the plight of the small-time entrepreneur. After all, what do we occasionally pay our taxes for? Dick Simnel was ten years old when, back at the family smithy in Sheepridge, his father simply disappeared in a cloud of furnace parts and flying metal, all enveloped in a pink steam. 
He was never found in the terrible haze of scorching dampness, but on that very day young Dick Simnel vowed to whatever was left of his father in that boiling steam that he would make steam his servant. His mother had other ideas. She was a midwife, and as she said to her neighbours, "'Babbies are born everywhere. I'll never be without a customer.' So, against her son's wishes, Elsie Simnel decided to take him away from what she now considered to be a haunted place. She packed up their belongings, and together they returned to her family home near Stowe Lat, where people didn't inexplicably disappear in a hot pink cloud. Soon after they arrived, something important happened to her boy. One day, while waiting for his mother to return from a difficult delivery, Dick walked into a building that looked interesting, and which turned out to be a library. At first he thought it was full of poncy stuff, or kings and poets and lovers and battles, but in one crucial book he found something called mathematics and the world of numbers. And that was why one day, some ten years later, he pulled together every fibre of his being and said, "'Mother, you know last year when I said I were going hiking in the mountains of Uberwald with me mates? Well, it were kind of, sort of, a kind of lie, only very small, mind you,' Dick blushed. "'You see, I found keys to Dad's old shed, and, well, I went back to Sheepridge and did some experimenting, and—' He looked at his mother anxiously. "'I think I know what he were doing wrong.' Dick was braced for stiff objections, but he hadn't reckoned on tears, so many tears, and as he tried to console her, he added, "'You, mother, and Uncle Flavius got me an education. You got me the knowing of the numbers, including the arithmetic and weird stuff dreamed up by the philosophers in the Phoebe, where even camels can do logarithms on their toes. Dad didn't know this stuff. He had the right ideas, but he didn't have the tech null ogy right.' At this point, Dick allowed his mother to talk, and she said, "'I know there's no stopping you, our Dick. You're just like your stubborn father were, pig-headed. Is that what you've been doing in the barn? Techology?' She looked at him accusingly, then sighed. "'I can see I can't tell you what to do, but you tell me. How can your logger reason stop you going the way of your poor old dad?' She started sobbing again. Dick pulled out of his jacket something that looked like a small wand, which might have been made for a miniature wizard, and said, "'This'll keep me safe, mother. I've the knowing of the sliding rule. I can tell the sign what to do, and the cosine likewise, and work out the tangent of quadratics. Come on, mother, stop fretting and come with me now to barn. You must see her.' Mrs Simnel, reluctant, was dragged by her son to the great open barn he had kitted out like the workshop back at Sheepridge hoping against hope that her son had accidentally found himself a girl. Inside the barn she looked helplessly at a large circle of metal which covered most of the floor. Something metallic whizzed round and round on the metal, sounding like a squirrel in a cage, giving off a smell much like camphor. "'Here she is, mother. Ain't she champion?' Dick said happily. "'I call her Iron Girder.' "'What is it, son?' He grinned hugely and said, "'It's what they call a prototype, mother. "'You've got to have a prototype if you're going to be an engineer.' His mother smiled wanly, but there was no stopping Dick. The words just tumbled out. 
The thing is, Mother, before you attempt out, you've got to have some idea of what it is you want to do. One of the books I found in the library was about being an architect, and in that book, the man who wrote it said before he built his next big house, he always made quite tiny models to get an idea of how it would all work out. He said it sounds fiddly and stuff, but going slowly and being thorough is the only way forward. And so I'm testing her out slowly, seeing what works and what doesn't. And actually, I'm quite proud of myself. In the beginning, I made track wooden, but I reckoned that the engine I wanted would be very heavy, so I chopped up wooden circle for firewood and went back to forge. Mrs Simnel looked at the little mechanism running round and round on the barn floor and said, in the voice of someone really trying to understand, "'Eh, lad, but what does it do?' "'Well, I remembered what Dad said about time he were watching kettle boiling and noticed lid going up and down with pressure.' and he told me that one day someone would build a bigger kettle that would lift more than a kettle lid, and I believe I have the knowing of the way to build a proper kettle, mother. And what would that do, my boy? said his mother sternly. And she watched the glow in her son's eyes as he said, Everything, mother, everything. Still in a haze of slight misunderstanding, Mrs. Simnel watched him unroll a large and rather grubby piece of paper. It's called a blueprint, mother. You've got to have a blueprint. It shows you how everything fits together. Is this part of the prototype? The boy looked at his doting mother's face and realised that a little more exposition should be forthcoming. He took her by the hand and said, Mother, I know they're all lines and circles to you, but once you have the knowing of the circles and the lines and all, you know that this is a picture of an engine. Mrs. Simnel gripped his hand and said, What do you think you're going to do with it, our dick? And young Simnel grinned and said happily, Change things as needs changing, mother. Mrs. Simnel gave her son a curious look for a moment or two, then appeared to reach a grudging conclusion, and said, "'Just you come with me, my lad.' She led him back into the house, where they climbed up the ladder into the attic. She pointed out to her son a sturdy seaman's chest, covered in dust. "'Your grandad gave me this to give to you when I thought you needed it. Here's the key.' She was gratified that he didn't grab it, and indeed looked carefully at the trunk before opening it. As he pushed up the lid, suddenly the air was filled with the glimmer of gold. Your grandad was slightly a bit of a pirate, and then he got religion and were a bit afeard, and the last words he said to me on his deathbed were, That young lad'll do something one day. You mark my words, our Elsie, but I'm damned if I know what it's going to be. The people of the town were quite accustomed to the clangings and bangings emanating every day from the various blacksmith forges for which the area was famous. It seemed that, even though he had set up a forge of his own, young Simnel had decided not to enter the blacksmithing trade, possibly due to the dreadful business of Mr Simnel Senior's leaving the world so abruptly. The local blacksmiths soon got used to making mysterious items that young Mr Simnel had sketched out meticulously. He never told them what he was constructing, but since they were earning a lot of money, they didn't mind. The news of his legacy got around, of course. Gold always finds its way out somehow. And there was a scratching of heads among the population exemplified by the oldest inhabitant, 
who, sitting on the bench outside the tavern, said, "'Well, bugger me! Lad were blessed with an inherited fortune in gold and turned it into a load of iron!' He laughed, and so did everybody else. But nevertheless they continued to watch young Dick Simnel slip in and out of the wicket gate of his old and almost derelict barn, double padlocked at all times. Simnel had found a couple of local likely lads who helped him make things and move things around. Over time the barn was augmented by a host of other sheds. More lads were taken on, and the hammers were heard all day every day, and, a bit at a time, information trickled into what might be called the local consciousness. Apparently the lad had made a pump, an interesting pump that pumped water very high, and then he'd thrown everything away and said things like, We need more steel than iron. There were tales of great reams of paper laid out on desks as young Simnel worked out a wonderful undertaking, as he called it. Admittedly, there had been the occasional explosion, and then people heard about what the lads called the bunker, which had been useful to jump into on several occasions when there had been a little incident. And then there was the unfamiliar but somehow homely and rhythmic chuffing noise. Really quite a pleasant noise, almost hypnotic, which was strange because the mechanical creature that was making the noise sounded more alive than you would have expected. It was noticed in the locality that the two main co-workers of Mr. Simnel, or Mad Iron Simnel, as some were now calling him, seemed somewhat changed, more grown up and aware of themselves, young men, acolytes of the mysterious thing behind the doors, and no amount of bribery by beer or by women in the pub would make them give up the precious secrets of the barn. There were some salacious comments about this, but it appeared, alas, to the local and as yet unmarried girls that Mad Iron Simnel and his men had found something more interesting than women, and apparently it was made of steel. They conducted themselves now as befitted the masters of the fiery furnace. And then, of course, there were the sunny days when young Simnel and his cohorts dug long lines in the field next to the barn and filled them with metal while the furnace glowed day and night, and everyone shook their heads and said, Madness. And this went on, it seemed forever, until ever was finished, and the banging and clanging and smelting had stopped. Then Mr. Simnel's lieutenants pulled aside the double doors of the big barn and filled the world with smoke. Very little happened in this part of Stolat, and this was enough to bring people running. Most of them arrived in time to see something heading out towards them, panting and steaming, with fast-spinning wheels and oscillating rods eerily appearing and disappearing in the smoke and the haze. And on top of it all, like a sort of king of smoke and fire, Dick Simnel, his face contorted with the effort of concentration. It was faintly reassuring that this something was apparently under the control of somebody human, although the more thoughtful of the onlookers might have added, so what, so's a spoon, and got ready to run away as the steaming, dancing, spinning, reciprocating engine cleared the barn and plunged on down the tracks laid in the field. And the bystanders, most of whom were now by-runners, 
and in certain instances by stampeders, fled and complained, except, of course, for every little boy of any age who followed it with eyes open wide, vowing there and then that one day he would be the captain of the terrible noxious engine. Oh, yes, indeed. A prince of the steam, a master of the sparks, a coachman of the thunderbolts. And outside, freed at last, the smoke drifted purposefully away from the shed in the direction of the largest city in the world. It drifted slowly at first, but gathered speed. Later that day, and after several triumphant turns around the short track in the field, Simnel sat down with his helpers. Wally, Dave, I'm running out of brass, lads, he said. Get your mothers to get your stuff together, make us some butties, bring out horses. We're taking Iron Gerda to Ank Morpork. I hear it's the place where things happen. Of course, Lord Vetinari, tyrant of Ank Morpork, would occasionally meet Lady Margolotta, governess of Uberwald. Why shouldn't he? After all, he also occasionally had meetings with Diamond King of Trolls up near Coombe Valley, and indeed with the low King of the Dwarfs, Rhys Reeson, in his caverns under Uberwald. This, as everybody knew, was politics. Yes, politics. The secret glue that stopped the world falling into warfare. In the past there had been so much war, far too much. But as every schoolboy knew, or at least knew in those days when schoolboys actually read anything more demanding than a crisp packet, not so long ago a truly terrible war, the last war of Coombe Valley, had almost happened, out of which the dwarfs and trolls had managed to achieve not exactly peace, but an understanding from which, hopefully, peace might evolve. There had been the shaking of hands, important hands, shaken fervently, and so there was hope, hope as fragile as a thought. Indeed, thought Lord Vetinari, as his coach rattled along towards Uberwald, in the rosy afterglow that had followed the famous Coombe Valley Accord, even goblins had finally been recognised as sapient creatures to be metaphorically treated as brothers, although not necessarily as brothers-in-law. He reflected that, from a distance, the world might conceivably look to be at peace, a state of affairs that always ends in war, eventually. He winced as his coach hit another almost egregious bump on the road. He'd had the seats supplemented with extra mattress padding, but simply nothing could turn the journey to Uberwald into anything other than a penance at every pothole, leading to fundamental discomfort. Progress had been very slow, although stops at Clax Towers along the route had allowed his secretary, Drumnot, to collect the daily crossword puzzle without which Lord Vetinari considered the day incomplete. There was a bang from outside. Good grief! Must we hit every pothole in the road, Drumnot? I'm sorry, sir, but it appears that her ladyship cannot even now control the bandits around the Willingness Pass. She has a culling every so often, but I'm afraid this is the least dangerous route. There was a shout outside, followed by more banging. Vetinari blew out his reading lamp moments before a ferocious-looking individual pushed the point of a crossbow bolt to the glass of the carriage which was now in darkness, and said, "'Just you'll come out here with all your valuables, or it'll be the worst for you, OK? No tricks now. We're assassins.' Lord Vetinari calmly put down the book he had been reading, sighed, and said to Drumnot, 
It appears, Drumnot, that we have been hijacked by assassins. Isn't that nice? And now Drumnot had a little smile. Oh, yes, how nice, sir. You always like meeting assassins. I won't get in your way, sir. Vetinari pulled his cloak around him as he stepped out of the coach and said, There is no reason for violence, gentlemen. I will give you everything I have. And it was no more than two minutes later that his lordship climbed back up into the coach and signalled for the driver to carry on as if nothing had happened. After a while, and out of sheer curiosity, Drumnot said, "'What happened this time, my lord? I didn't hear anything.' Beside him, Lord Vetinari said, "'Neither did they, Drumnot. Dear me, it's such a waste. One wonders why they don't learn to read. Then they'd recognise the crest on my coach, which would have enlightened them.' As the coach got up to what might be considered an erratic kind of speed, and after some thought, Drumnot said, "'But your crest, sir, is black on a black background, and it's a very dark night.' "'Ah, yes, Drumnot,' Lord Vetinari replied, with what passed as a smile. "'Do you know, I hadn't thought of that.' There was something inevitable about Lady Margolotta's castle. As the great wooden doors slowly opened, every door hinge creaked. After all, there was such a thing as socially acceptable ambience. Indeed, what kind of vampire would live in a castle that didn't creak and groan on cue? The Igors wouldn't have it any other way. And now the resident Igor welcomed Lord Vetinari and his secretary into a cavernous hall with spiders' webs hanging pendulously from the ceiling. And there was a sense, only a sense, that down in the basement somewhere something was screaming. But, of course, Vetinari reflected, here was a wonderful lady who had made vampires understand that returning from the grave so often that you got dizzy was rather stupid, and who somehow had persuaded them to at least tone down their nocturnal activities. Besides which, she had introduced coffee to Uberwald, apparently exchanging one terrifying craving for another. Lady Margolotta was always short and to the point as was the nature of the conversation that followed a splendid dinner a few days later. "'It is the Grags. The Grags again, yes, Havelock. After all this time, my word even worse just as you, my dear, prophesied. How could you have foreseen it?' "'Well, madam, Diamond King of Trolls asked me the very same thing, but all I can say is that it lies in the indefatigable nature of sapient creatures.' In short, they can't all be satisfied at the same time. You thought the bunting and fireworks and handshakes and pledges after Coombe Valley was signed and sealed was the end of it, yes? Personally, I have always considered this a mere interlude. In short, Magalotta, peace is what you have while incubating the next war. It is impossible to accommodate everyone, and twice as impossible to please all the dwarfs. You see, when I'm talking to Diamond King of Trolls, he is the mouthpiece of the trolls. He speaks for all the trolls. Sensible as they are, they leave it all to him when it comes to the politics. And then, on the other hand, we have yourself, dear lady. You speak for all your 
folk in Bianc, and most agreements made with you are, well, quite agreeable. But the dwarfs, what a calamity! Just when you think you're talking to the leader of the dwarfs, some wild-eyed grag will pop out on the landscape, and suddenly all bets are off, all treaties instantly become null and void, and there is no possibility of trust. As you know, there is a king, a deskaknik, literal translation, chief mining engineer, as they call him, in every mine on the disk. How does one do business with people like this? Every dwarf his own inner tyrant. Well, said Lady Margolotta, Rhys Rhyson is managing quite well in the circumstances, and we in higher Überwald, now her ladyship almost whispered, are very much on the side of progress. But, yes, how can one win once and for all? That is what I would like to know. His lordship set down his glass carefully and said, That, alas, is never totally possible. The stars change, people change, and all we can do is assist the future with care and thoughtful determination to see the world at peace, even if it means ushering some of its worst threats to an early grave. Although I am bound to say that subtlety and careful interrogation of the things the world puts in front of us suggest to me that the low king, whom, as protocol dictates, I called upon before coming here to meet you, is forming a plan right now, and when he makes his play, we will throw everything in to support him. He is taking a very big gamble on the future. He believes that the time is right, especially since Ankh-Morpork is now well known to have the largest dwarf community in the world. But I believe his people don't like too much modernity. I must admit I can see why. Progress is such a worrisome thing when one is trying to maintain peace in the world. So unpredictable. Can I remind you, Havelock, that many, many years ago, an Ephibian philosopher built an engine that was very powerful, scarily so. If those people had persevered with the engine powered by steam, the nature of life now might have been very much different. Don't you find that worrying? How can we guide the future when one idiot can make a mechanism that might change everything? Lord Vetinari dribbled a last drop of brandy into his glass and said cheerfully, Madam, only a fool would try to stop the progress of the multitude. Vox populi, vox deorum, carefully shepherded by a thoughtful prince, of course. And so I take the view that when it's steam engine time, steam engines will come. And what do you think you're doing, dwarf? Young Magnus Magnuson didn't pay much attention at first to the senior dwarf, whose face, in so far as it could be seen, was definitely grumpy, the kind of dwarf that had apparently never himself been young. And so he shrugged and said, No offence, O venerable one, but what I think I'm doing is walking along, minding my own business in the hope that others would be minding their own. I hope you have no rat with that. Humans might have said beef at this point, 
but not many dwarfs have a taste for cow, whereas rat is perennially dependable. It is said that a soft answer turneth away wrath, but this assertion has a lot to do with hope, and was now turning out to be patently inaccurate, since even a well-spoken and thoughtful soft answer could actually drive the wrong kind of person into a state of fury if wrath was what they had in mind, and that was the state the elderly dwarf was now enjoying. "'Why are you wearing your helmet backwards, young dwarf?' Magnus was an easy-going dwarf, and did the wrong thing, which was to be logical. "'Well, O oh, venerable one, it's got my scouting badge on it, you know, scouting, out in the fresh air, not getting up to mischief and serving my community well.' This litany of good intentions didn't seem to get Magnus any friends, and his sense of peril began belatedly to function much faster. The old dwarf was really, really unhappy about him, and during this short exchange a few other dwarfs had sauntered over to them, looking at Magnus as if weighing him up for the fight. It was Magnus's first time alone in the twin cities of Bjonk and Schmalzberg, and he hadn't expected to be greeted like this. These dwarfs didn't look like the ones he had grown up with in Treacle Mine Road, and he began to back away, saying hurriedly, "'I'm here to see my granny, right, if you don't mind. "'She's not very well, and I've come all the way from Ankh-Morpork, "'hitching rides on carts and sleeping out every night in haystacks and barns. "'It's a long, long way.' "'And then it all happened. "'Magnus was a speedy runner, as befitted the Ankh-Morpork rat pack. 